Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, welcome to the 2022 winter term of SNID. I'm Dr. Carolyn Prouse. I'm from Geography and Planning, and I co-chair SNID with Dr. Aicha Tomach from Cultural Studies and Global Development Studies. And our coordinator is Dairon Perez, who is a PhD candidate in Geography. We would first like to acknowledge that we that SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario, on whose shores many of us here today reside. At SNID, we are committed to hosting anti-colonial scholars and practitioners, and the remaining SNID speakers for this term, including today's, are no exception. And I'm going to put into the chat the list of speakers for the rest of the term. Um, we have now confirmed the last slot, um, which we had been asking SNID attendees to hold. And we are excited to announce that the Queen's or Queen's New Black Studies chairs, Dr. Vanessa Thompson and Dr. Daniel McNeil, will be joining us on March 31st. So I'm just going to put that those remaining SNID dates in the chat for you to see. Okay, but to today, um, it is my true honor to present Dr. Shabana Xavier. Uh, Dr. Xavier is an assistant professor at Queens in the School of Religion. Her work focuses on contemporary and global Islam and Sufism in North America and South Asia. Um, and she has a particular focus on religion and diaspora. She is an extremely prolific early career scholar. She has already published two books about Sufism, um, so Sacred Spaces and Transnational Networks in American Sufism and Contemporary Sufism. And she has two more book projects currently on the go. Dr. Xavier is also an award-winning pedagogue. She received the School of Graduate and Postgraduate Studies John G. Freeman Faculty Excellence Award for the 2019-2020 academic year. And she hosts a renowned podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which I urge you to check out. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Xavier. Oh, thanks, Dr. Praz. It's such a generous and kind introduction. <laughs> um, makes me feel good. But thank you all um, for being here, especially on a Friday before. Uh, no, it's not Friday today. Today is uh, Thursday, <laughs> Thursday before reading week. Um, I'm grateful for the space. Um, and I'm also grateful for the invitation to share some of my works in progress. So this is um, uh, a project that I've been working on for a long time. Um, I usually say this is the, the lifelong project that is just kind of ongoing. Um, and so um, we'll kind of see, I'll talk a little bit about it um, and see where we're at with it. Um, so I'm sharing my screen right now. Um, folks could see, Aisha, you could see. Okay, great, awesome. Um, so I'll talk a little bit and I'll just also keep an eye on the time so that I don't go over too much, but I've asked Dr. Prowse to also keep me um, even I in the time because I could talk forever. Um, so um, most of my work is really kind of interested in contemporary Sufism um, and I'll say a little bit about what Sufism is um, and I tend to kind of take regional approaches. Um, so I've done a lot of work in the United States um, and I've 
just finishing actually a, a book project up on the Canadian context, which hopefully will be coming out soon. Um, and um, so one of the projects I've been working on is the Sri Lankan case. And I started in when, um, during my dissertation in 2011, but because it's such a, um, it's a big project, um, um, not, not a lot has been written on Sufism in Sri Lanka. I'm also um, Tamil and Sri Lankan and was displaced from the war. And so I think there's a lot of kind of emotions associated with this project, but also issues of access. Um, Sri Lanka, as I'll mention, um, has moments of inaccessibility as a researcher, um, but some of those moments are also um, inaccessible as somebody who is from the country and has been displaced from the country and exists in, in the diaspora in, in Toronto, where I grew up in Scarborough. And so there's a lot of kind of identity politics that are associated with it. So this is part of the reason, and I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A and kind of speak, give, share more details, but it's part of the reason that this project always feels like just a growing project, but an ongoing project, um, and there's different features of it to tackle. And so the more that I talk about it, I think it'll become a little bit evident. Um, and there's just, you know, issues of safety and violence and, and things like that. Um, and as a, as a woman, these things are also a little bit more challenging to navigate in the field. Um, so I hope one day that this project will get done, um, but um, it just seems like it's it's one of these things I talk about um, and don't often get to write about as much as I want to because I haven't quite figured out some of the, um, the details and the next stages. So that's kind of just a prelude to say where it's at and what my relationship with this, uh, this project is. So I'll say a little bit about the Sri Lankan context, which uh, many of you may not be quite a, um, aware of. Um, and then I'll say a little bit about um, Sufism and then I'll say what exactly it is that I'm doing in this research and what kind of research questions that I'm asking and share with you some of the things that I've found. Um, so the context of Sri Lanka is really complicated. Um, Sri Lanka became an independent, um, you know, in its post-colonial context became independent from Britain in 1948. Um, and so since kind of 1948 and preceding that, so during British colonialism, there's always been, you know, these issues of um, uh, tensions. And these tensions have developed around um, ethnicity, but an ethnicity that's been defined by linguistics. So that means that there are languages people speak in Sri Lanka. Um, so for instance, I speak Tamil. Um, there are people who folks uh, who speak um, Singhala. And so a Tamil and Singhala tend to be the main um, linguistic identities, but those identities end up defining your ethnicity. So there's a there's kind of a huge identity politic dynamic that goes on, which makes things complicated. The, the other layer to this is that the identity, the ethno-linguistic identities also at times tied to um, religious identity. So many of the folks who do speak Singhala and who are the majority in the, in the context of the nation state, the contemporary nation state um, are Buddhist. There are some who are Christians. Um, folks who are the minority, there's numerous minority communities, including Tamils, Muslims, indigenous communities, um, and, and burghers who have kind of descended from Europeans um, and Malays, so folks who are from Malaysia who were um, transplanted in some various contexts to the Sri Lanka to Sri Lanka historically. Um, but the fault lines or the the civil war was really around issues between the single majority who tended to be Buddhist and Tamil minority who tended to be Hindu um, and some Christian. The one complexity here is that there's a third ethnic block, but that ethnic block is defined by religious identity, even though it plays, it, it, it acts as an ethnic identity and that's Muslim. And so in Sri Lanka, there's just kind of this, you know, um, 
mix of those who speak Tamil, those who speak um, uh, Singala, um, and those who speak, uh, those who are Muslim, the Muslims folks also speak Tamil, right? And so there's kind of these issues around separate representation. Um, and the war that happened, which kind of, you know, started to build up post-independence in 1948, but eventually kind of coalesced in the early 1980s, which led to the displacement of most folks, um, was um, around this idea of separate representation. So Tamils who uh, are a bloc who occupied the North, as you can see here, wanted ultimately their um, sovereignty because they didn't feel that they were properly represented either constitutionally or legally within the nation state. And an example of this is that at times, um, over time, Singala as a language is privileged so that, um, for instance, at university entrance exams, everybody, even if you were non-Singalese, would have to write entrance exams in Singalese in order to get accepted into university. If you were looking for um, uh, public sector jobs, Singala um, languages was again preferred. Um, Buddhism was uh, preferred and constitutionally supported, even though it was tense, supposed to be a secular state. So there's all these kind of instances that were happening that led up to kind of the outbreak of the War, which went on from about, I would say, the um, 1980s which to 2009 when it officially uh, ended. Um, and so during this time, there's kind of this emergence of uh, a Buddhist fundamentalism, which is hard to conceptualize because we in the West have a tendency to think of Buddhism as peaceful, as, you know, uh, a tradition of Zen and meditation and, you know, Buddha as a happy figure, but in places like, you know, um, Sri Lanka, uh, Myanmar, um, Buddhism kind of takes on a, a particular, some, some Buddhism, not all obviously, takes on a particular ethno, um, uh, extremist tendency. And so this kind of extremism is also what I'm interested in because of what it's doing to minority communities in the, in the Sri Lankan context. So this is a little bit of the snapshot of, of this. Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated and happy to answer more questions. But what these fault lines around ethno-linguistic identities and religious identities has meant is that in Sri Lanka, even after the war ended in 2009, but of course during the war and before the war, sacred spaces are sites that have always been sites of um, attack and violence. And these forms of violence has been, um, you know, based on the fact that particular communities like Tamil communities perhaps did not um, like what Muslim communities were doing or um, some Buddhist uh, singular communities didn't like what Tamil communities were doing. So sacred sites just became sites of target um, for bombings, um, violence in terms of of, you know, guns. Um, and so there's a lot of incidences, unfortunately, where you could find narratives of um, um, Tamil militant leaders going into mosques and assassinating folks. Um, and also, um, you know, there's a, a sacred space, maybe a, a Buddhist, um, a mosque, sorry, a mosque or a Muslim business that all of a sudden is trying to be reclaimed by perhaps um, a Buddhist community or and there's some religious rhetoric attached, which leads into, um, you know, violence, so communal violence, um, and then curfews. So during field work, for instance, in, in August 2013, when I was in Sri Lanka, um, there was a violence that took place in one particular neighborhood that I was close by, and it was over an attack that took place at a mosque. Um, and some Buddhist communities who were extremists, um, and so definitely not representative of the majority, felt that that mosque should not be there because it, it you know, it shouldn't be there because it's a Buddhist site. And that resulted in communal violence, attacking the Muslim spaces, homes, businesses, and so there was a curfew that was um, in, uh, enforced and blackout of media and things like that. So this, is, so this kind of um, 
this kind of communal violence is quite normal. And so that you could kind of get a sense of why doing field work consistently is difficult. Um, and again, what has happened post-war, so the war that took place, um, the civil war that was against the nation state, um, so, you know, Sri Lanka trying to stop the um, one Tamil movement, um, the Ta Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam, it, the end of the war in 2009 was framed as the end of the Tamil separatist cause, and so it's, it's kind of presented as that issue is over, but what that has meant is that there's a rise of a new like a new group that is the problem in the state, right? Because when you're creating nation building is so dependent on constructing an idea of what the nation constitutes, it's often built against an other. And so the other is necessary and productive sometimes because it reinforces what the nation is and why the nation is necessary. And in this context, um, kind of a, a, a Buddhist um, um, single nation state, right? And so Muslims have emerged as the new other because the Tamils have, you know, their cause has been quelled essentially. Um, and so there's more attacks that are taking place against uh, Muslim organizations, uh, Muslim spaces. Um, the Easter bombings in um, April, 2019, a few years ago was also a turning point. Um, what had happened was a small group of individuals who were associated with the ISIS, so um, Islamic State of Iraq and um, yeah, Islamic State um, was interest was, either their ideas influenced a few individuals who then um, decided to take part in these attacks that targeted churches and hotels and led to a lot of deaths. Um, and so this also further heightened the sense that um, Islam is an issue on the island because there's this form of fundamentalism that's emerging, right? So some of these activities is reinforcing this rhetoric that Islam Muslims, again, as an ethnic bloc, but also as a religious religious group is a problem on the island. Um, and so that's led to kind of state-based practices that are infringing on certain rights. And so we saw this, um, and we did see this during COVID, for instance, where um, the government enforced um, a mandate of cremation of anybody who died of COVID. Um, and though this may not be uh, deeply problematic practice for Hindus and uh, perhaps for some Buddhists. Um, for Muslims and for maybe some Christians, obviously the practice of cremation is uh, religiously just not viable because it's not something they could do. And so Muslim communities saw this as another instance where the state was targeting them particularly and using kind of particular state policies here particular discourse around the pandemic and health to further kind of marginalize and attack them, right? So there's a lot of kind of communal tensions that are going on. And so this is the context in which I'm thinking about Sufi spaces. Um, and this is the context in which I'm doing my research and asking some of the questions that I'm asking. Um, so Sufism um, is essentially, I mean, it's hard to describe because it's many things, um, but one way to think about Sufism is that it's a particular interpretation of Islam. Um, and the particular interpretation of Islam means that you do all the things that, you know, most Muslims might do, but you might also take more um, orientations towards an experiential or spiritual practice of Islam. Um, this form of Sufism in the West has meant something different, but in the context of Sri Lanka, it's just being a Sufi for most folks is being a Muslim. Um, and there's particular practices that are associated with it that not all Muslims would do. And one of the practices that emerges for Sufis is the idea of sacred spaces. Um, in Sufism, there's these holy figures that emerge because they're seen as um, 
figures who have um, are great role models. And so because they're great role models, um, both in life and in their death, they're kind of memorialized. Um, and this is very similar to kind of saintly veneration that you might see in Catholic or Eastern Orthodox traditions where um, a figure, because of their holy state, their spiritual state, are deemed to have a proximity to the divine. And that proximity to the divine is um, important for everyday people who are not like that right because you want some of that access and you want to be around those people who have an access to the divine and hoping that that would also kind of um, impact you spiritually or um, they could pray for you or um, they could look after you in some capacity right and so in Sufism these kind of holy figures saint-like figures have emerged and so what it means is that when those figures die they often get interred and you know mausoleums or tombs are built for them as a way to memorialize them um, as a way to visit them and perform particular practices. Um, but this is not okay for all Muslims, right? Like for some Muslims, the idea of being spiritually inclined in Islam is great. But the idea that these other practices are taking place, it's kind of, you know, um, verging on blasphemy because you're maybe um, equating these saints to gods and you shouldn't because there's only one God, right? And so this is where it gets into a little bit of a theological issue. But um, what this has meant is that sacred spaces have been very important in Sufism, not only in, in Sri Lanka, but across um, a lot of the um, lot of the world where Muslims live, right? And these spaces are becoming actually quite normal in the United States and, and places like Canada. And this is kind of where I do my research in the diaspora context. But in the Sri Lankan context, I think sacred spaces, um, particularly affiliated with Sufis, tell a, a, a little bit of a different story. Um, and the story here is that it's telling us, again, against the backdrop that I've just kind of relayed of post-war context, of um, rising Buddhist nationalism, of anti-Muslim sentiments, Sufi spaces and really contain this ambiguous, ambivalent, precarious, um, positionality. And it is precisely this that I'm interested in, because I think by looking at these spaces for me, I treat these spaces as an opportunity for me to understand a different story of Islam in the Sri Lankan context, a spatial story, but I think it also helps me think about um, different cosmologies, different narratives, and different positionalities that's not often ends up in marginalizing um, Muslims or Sufis, but actually centering, which when what that means is that the sacred spaces become the center. They're the sites from which reality, um, self, uh, practices, belonging are mapped. So in a space, in a, in a geographical or nation state space where territory is so contested, I'm very interested in the fact that these sacred spaces provide alternative cosmologies, real or imagined, but that still have some kind of agency for the communities who um, access them, right? Um, but this agency is not always um, um, constant or safe. And so in my kind of research, what I do is I've been documenting Sufi shrines and trying to figure out stories that are associated with it and trying to figure out what narratives and networks and, and ritual practices um, and identity politics and kind of other issues come up around these spaces. So as I said, I've just, um, what I tend to do is when I do go to Sri Lanka or have the capacity to go to Sri Lanka, I've been traveling around the country and documenting different Sufi shrines. Um, because of the civil war, a lot of the 
community members and, and different neighborhoods have been internally displaced and are no longer there. So there may be situations that I come to a Sufi shrine and I find out that people don't know what the story of that shrine is. And so I do feel that part of the archival work I'm doing, I never intended to do archival work, but it's turned it into kind of this documentation process. And, and so it'll be interesting for me to think about what to do with this research down the road and, and, and also if documenting some of these sites um, results in kind of um, making them targets, right? So there's kind of a lot of ethical concerns for me as well in terms of, um, you know, quote unquote, outing these shrines, right? If, if they're not being protected anymore, if they're being targets. Um, and so I'll talk about some of the spaces. Um, part of the reason that Sufi spaces in Sri Lanka have emerged is because of one story. Um, there's a story of Adam. And so um, some of you may or may not know that um, Adam is perceived to be the, the first patriarch or the prophet in, in Muslim traditions and Christian traditions and, and in um, Jewish traditions. And this is the first figure. Um, there's a story in South Asia, essentially, that when Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise, that Adam fell to a place in India. Over time, um, a lot of people associated that a place that Adam fell to as being Sri Lanka. And so there's a mountaintop in Sri Lanka known as Adam's Peak. And on that mountaintop, there's a giant footprint. And so many Muslims historically, actually, in the South Asian context, believe that Adam's footprint um, was marked there because when he fell from, from heaven, or paradise. Um, he landed there and Eve um, landed in Jeddah in, in Saudi Arabia, present day Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula. So because of this, this becomes a major pilgrimage site. But of course, in, in a place where things are really religiously plural, it means that different communities are also claiming the site. So a lot of Buddhists believe that it's Buddha's footprint that's at the top of the mountain. Um, Hindus believe that it's um, Shiva, um, a deity um, that's at the top of the mountain. And Christians, some believe that it's um, it's Adams and others believe that it could be um, St. Thomas, who was this other disciple. So there's kind of differing opinions amongst them. But this, this space becomes kind of the pivotal space that then draws in other individuals because what happens is from kind of like the 13th century and well before then a lot of Muslims used to travel to Sri Lanka especially during um, trade so you know Sri Lanka would be a natural stopover point when you're going from let's say the Arab Gulf and you're trying to get to the Southeast Asian region so if the if Sri Lanka is in the in, in the ocean um, a lot of sailors and traders Arab traders used to stop over and so one of the things that they used to do is actually during their stopover period they would go up walk up this mountain um, and I've climbed up this mountain it took about four hours to go up it's like 5,000 straight steps actually um, and, and it took about an eight, eight hour process to climb up and then to climb back down and it was brutal like I could not walk the next day so it's, it's a very demanding pilgrimage that you go up but it is believed that you go up because you're trying to you know give honor to Adam so many Sufis historically would have come to um, Sri Lanka for this reason and many ended up staying so because they ended up staying what I try to map out is that other um, pilgrimage sites emerged because of this interest in this primary one, Adam's Peak. So talk about Dr. Jelani and Katragama. And so this becomes kind of the basis in which minor Sufi shrines are, are popping up across the country, right? So historically what happens is that people would go to Adam's Peaks. I'm not sure if you could see my mouse moving. Um, and then they would go to this next place, which is Jelani and then to Katragama. So this is a walking pilgrimage. So you would start from Adam's Peak, go to Jelani and go to Katragama. Um, and it would obviously take a long time to do. Um, 
Um, and but these are also shared spaces. It's just kind of the reality. They were capacious spaces in the in the sense that it accommodated different religious worldviews, and they were kind of set um, to be shared, and it was fine. But I think in the in kind of post-independence contexts, a lot of the sharing has meant that it's uh, resulted in. Um, contestation and less accommodation. So if you look at Dr. Jelani, another space that I've been thinking about, um, this is a prime example of one of the things that's happening in with Sufi shrines. Um, Dr. Jelani is at the top of this kind of jungle, it's this mountainous region, you walk up these steps to these gates, um, and then you descend down. Um, and this is a site where they believe um, um, a 12th century um, Sufi saint from Baghdad came. Um, it's not historically accurate that he would have came, but I don't think that's the point about a lot of these stories. That's why there are hagiographies, there are narratives about saints that historically may not be accurate, but the point is that people believe in them, right? And it's led to the creation of these spaces. Um, so Dr. Jelani is this open space, um, jungle kind of shrine where um, this individual, um, Abdul Qadir Jelani was said to have meditated and mystically kind of went to, to Mecca, to Saudi Arabia. Um, and so because of the story that people believed in, they would come to do pilgrimage here. And that's led to many other Sufi tombs that are in this region, including women as well. So a lot of these shrines are dedicated to women. Um, and I'm interested in the fact that a lot of these stories are lost because these are stories of uh, saints who are women who are lost historically, right? And I think it says a lot about um, the way in which contemporary Islam is being presented. Um, one of the things that has happened in um, Dr. Jelani is that um, Buddhists also hold that this site belongs to um, an important Buddhist figure and, and that it's a meditation, like a hermitage site. And so as a result of this, there's been contestation between Buddhists and, and Sufi Muslims who are contesting the authenticity of this space. Is it a Buddhist sacred space or is it a Sufi shrine, right? And this is where um, archeology span actually is utilized as a way to authenticate the space and to claim that one community has rights to it versus the other community. And so this means that archeology span and archeologists are brought in and by archeologists, you know, it's folks who are, the army are brought in um, to do quote unquote archaeological work, which is to dig and say that this is an archaeological site and therefore belongs to this particular community. That means any buildings that are, are built that are not part of this community are removed, right? Um, so I've gone to the space, um, I would say, two times. And the first time I went in 2013, the army was actually there um, um, removing things, removing buildings. Um, and they were trying to convince me that they were doing important work to archaeologically document the site. Obviously, it was not a safe situation for me. Um, and so I needed to figure out how to get out of it. But um, the idea that they perceived me as a journalist there to document what they were doing is also telling. And the fact that there was concerns that they, people did not want to know that there was actually kind of of removal of sacred spaces associated with Sufi shrines. And this is an ongoing issue, right, with Dr. Jelani, where because of social media, now it's getting a lot of attention on Facebook. Um, Muslims with Sufi inclinations are talking about it. And just recently, last year, um, there was a part of Dr. Jelani that was closed off and said to belong to the Buddhists. And so the Muslims were told to stay off of that site and they were told to just stay in their mosque space. Um, and recently um, they've started building a huge platform, which what will likely happen is probably a huge statue of the Buddha or, or some kind of other edifice document, um, make marking it as a Buddhist space, we'll go over it. Um, and so there's a lot of um, 
again, a lot of issues around erasure of the space, um, purging or pushing uh, Sufis out of the space and the reclamation of the space using kind of archaeological methodology, which I think is really fascinating to claim it as one thing. Um, and so where historically where there might have been kind of an accommodation of different religious communities at the site, more and more you're seeing that a lot of these spaces are being kind of targeted and it's coming with governmental support, which makes it really, really difficult for um, you know minoritized communities like Sufis to really do anything to, to make any claims. And even though um, legal claims have been made and paperwork has been filed and some media attention is trying to be had, um, it often doesn't always um, work, right? Because you're going up against um, a state that's perhaps supportive of some of these endeavors implicitly or explicitly. Um, so that's one example, but these are not the only examples that exist, right? Um, another example is that some of these spaces are immensely religiously plural and they continue to be. Um, and Qatar Gama is a place that um, I find really fascinating. It's a space that's located in kind of sanctuaries, um, um, it's a park. Um, elephants are roaming, it's a popular tourist site, you could kind of do like tours around the place as well. Um, it's a really beautiful location. It's also a huge complex that has Buddhist temples, Hindu temples, and, um, and a mosque all right beside each other, and they have shared stories, and they share relics and things like that. So this space, I think, is really fascinating because, unlike some other spaces, this is a space where regionally, and I think this has something to do with the fact that it's quite south and, you know, less north um, and less central, um, so this might be more of a regional peculiar, uh, peculiarity. Um, the site does maintain a realm of religious pluralism and access, um, and less contestation. There doesn't seem to be an issue of, you know, archaeological, you know, preservation or authenticity or legitimacy discourses, uh, but sites are kind of set. And, and this site is associated with um, a chronic figure by the name of Hither. Um, and the story of this figure is that he was this mysterious figure um, and Sufis tend to focus a lot on him in the sense that he had access to knowledge. He was meant to be a model of uh, who, what kind of a guide you're supposed to have a master that you're supposed to sit and learn from, and that he had access to knowledge that wasn't based on text um, and not traditional knowing, but esoteric knowing. And so this is where the name for Katragama essentially comes from. It's a variation of this. Um, and then, so the site essentially is dedicated to him and it's said that maybe hither comes here every seven years. Like there's a seven year cyclical process where he comes mysteriously. And because of that, other spaces, other tombs have been built around it. Um, so in the, in the Muslim area of this broader complex, there is lots of different Sufi tombs um, to different figures. Um, and one figure is really fascinating. Um, one figure's name by the name of Paul Kuribawa and it basically means um, um, a saint or um, a, a father figure who drinks milk. And this is based on the fact that they found this tomb in, in uncleared land. And there was a cow that kept going to this, this part of the land and they weren't sure why the cow was going there. And they later found out that there was um, a saint there who was drinking milk from the cow. And so that's how he got his name. And so what's interesting is that the saint is, is buried in Muslim complex but some of his relics and pictures of him exist in the Hindu complex. And so he's claimed by Muslim communities and Hindu communities. And um, when I was there doing field work, there was Buddhist monks who would come to the Muslim shrine and pray in front of the tomb 
right? So there's quite a lot of crisscrossing, quite a lot of sharing, um, and this was kind of seen as normal, right? And so again, I think this might be a regional example of how sometimes Sufi shrines do serve as these alternative spaces where there is some kind of um, accommodation that may not always be seen in the broader context of the nation state or other regional spaces like Dr. Jelani as well, right? Um, so this is kind of the major, um, shrines that I've uh, documented and I, I have argued that I think these are the shrines from which other subsequent smaller networks or orbits or constellations of Sufi shrines have emerged with their own kind of stories. Um, and so I'll just spend a few minutes um, as I'm wrapping up um, to see, um, to talk a little bit about some of this. Um, and the other localized shrines raise other issues. Um, one of the things is um, the fact that not all Muslims are okay with practices of Sufism and many people, many Muslims are have framed themselves as anti-Sufis and partly as I mentioned in the beginning, it's because they see Sufism as problematic or heretical. They see some of the practices of going to the shrines, venerating uh, at the tombs of figures to be deeply problematic because it challenges the monotheism or the idea that the central belief of Islam is that you're supposed to believe in one God why would you then go and do all these other practices? It's just not right. Um, part of the tendency towards kind of um, Islam uh, thinking, um, some Muslims thinking more in anti-Sufi tendencies also has something to do with the fact that there's more and more economic um, and labor connections to other parts of um, you know, the South Asian context, such as Pakistan, but also the Gulf states. There's a lot of labor that goes between um, migrant labor that goes between the Gulf states. Um, and so it's resulted in um, obviously expanded trade, all of these things, but it's also resulted in kind of exchange of missionary networks that come from certain parts of the Gulf countries, um, such as Saudi Arabia, that is trying to pivot some Muslim communities into a particular form and expression of Islam, which sees localized forms of Islam as heretical, sometimes backwards, um, sometimes inauthentic. And so part of the rise of anti-Sufism in the Sri Lankan context is also emerging from this. Of course, to understand the fact that there's a tendency to reorient and repivot your faith to, uh, and, um, to a global context, like to a global Muslim community also makes sense in the sense that um, you are, um, you're being marginalized in your nation state and you're not seen as belonging in the nation state. So it makes sense that you would then therefore heighten and emphasize your religiosity as a way to belong globally amongst other Muslims when you know within your nation state that you can never be fully Sri Lankan because the nation state doesn't want you because of all the violence. So this is a very kind of complex, intricate context in which Sufi shrines also need to be thought about, um, which I'm trying to, um, to think more about in these spaces. So what that means is that you have moments where Sufi are actually being attacked by other Muslims, right? because these other Muslims are also caught and wet between the state and um, minority communities, right? Um, and so this is where Sufis, I think, are a double major minority or doubly marginalized, as I kind of make the argument. Um, one of the coolest spaces that I have come across um, in Sri Lanka are what are known as 40 feet saints. And you'll see a lot of these in coastal regions. Um, and these are sites, obviously, that get a lot of um, pushback from other Muslims who think that Sufism is problematic. Um, 40 feet or long tombs are kind of common in some parts where um, uh, Islam have developed. And um, so you'll see them in the Middle East, Central Asia. And the narrative is historically that these, um, these are descendants of prophetic figures. So like 
I don't know, Adam, Noah, so I don't know if you know your prophets or whatnot, but um, it's believed, and so for some Muslims, they think that actually, um, historically, humans at the time of the prophets were giants, right? And so because they were giants, it makes sense that they would be 40 feet long, but because they morally regressed as time went on, they became less and less good people, um, for, you know, didn't have the good moral compass, whatnot, they shrunk in size. So this is actually kind of a narrative that's held by some folks. And so this is why you'll find, and this is why it's held that there are these huge tombs and these tombs therefore belong to descendants of um, these prophetic figures. Again, the claim that these tombs belong to descendants of prophetic figures also is a move to say that Muslims and Sufis have been on this island for a long, long time. Right, it's like a, it's like a move to make a territorial and political um, claim to the land. Right, it's like historicizing the origins from which this community has existed, as opposed to Muslims being latecomers and invaders, which is commonly the rhetoric that sometimes gets played up by uh, Buddhist nationalists. Right, you came late. You're not indigenous to this land. Um, you don't belong here, so therefore you don't get claims to this place. So. Across the island, you'll see these kind of long tombs, and then most of them are not kept well, right? They're locked up. Um, they're not. Um, they're not clean. Um, and often, you'll sometimes see incense sticks at the windows because people can't actually go inside. And I don't know if you can notice that on the door, it's actually the name of the person you're supposed to call to ask for him to come and open and there's two numbers and both of them are scratched and so when i was there we had called those numbers and nobody answered they were disconnected numbers so nobody came and opened um, the door for us and we were told that they don't open it anymore they keep it locked and again this is kind of a way to control and say these are practices that shouldn't be unfolding um, and kind of need to stop um, and so often these are controlled by uh, Muslim councils in the local areas who don't want people going and, and venerating. And by people, they usually mean other Muslims. They don't want going and venerating. So locking up is kind of the least, um, like kind of the lesser way to manage this. Um, the other kind of extreme end of uh, preventing practices around shrines for other Muslims is seen in um, in other cases, which we'll I'll get to. Um, so you'll see a lot of these kind of long tombs across Sri Lanka. And again, like most people think that it's like a relic. There's really no body there. It's fake. You know, there's all these different stories around it, and I think it's really fascinating. Um, this one in Thalamanar um, is too, and it's just kind of by the shore. Um, and some people, like the guide who took me there, he's like, obviously there's no body, and he was a Muslim who was just telling me some people just believe in this stuff and it's not real and it's like old Islam that they need to get away with um, and this shouldn't be allowed. But it's also interesting that people still come to these spaces, right? They find resonance to, in it. Um, and in Thalamanar, these two shrines, um, um, and they kind of believed to be these two bodies that washed up on shore um, and then they took and buried them or whatnot. Um, it's actually taken care of by the, the local Catholic church um, they kind of oversee it and they're fine with overseeing it and you have all these different visitors who come and one of the fun things is that a lot of um, tourists come because they believe that this is Adam and Eve's tomb right because of the story of Adam being expelled to, to Sri Lanka and then him falling there and that Adam reunited with Eve and they came back and started creation and so because these are two tombs that are side by side there you could go on a lot of tourist websites that say this like you know Sri Lanka.com or places to visit and they end up going and visiting these sites and kind of further perpetuates this fact that maybe this is Adam and Eve when it when it's not most Muslims will say no it's not it's just these other two two saints right um, but it's I think some of this idea that Catholics are taking care of 
that and Buddhists are coming and visiting on part of their tours to kind of the, the north um, is it's also curious. Um, the final example I'll mention is um, in Batsuklo. This is a very heavily Muslim region and um, there's often a lots of different tensions that unfold here. Um, one of the things is that um, there was a community that developed um, associated with this figure of or Palwan. Palwan just means like a wrestler. Um, and he he was a, a Sufi teacher. He had some radical ideas, you know, that you don't need to do all of the, you know, the five times prayers or fasting or any of this stuff. You could find God internally. You could pray all the time. You could do all of these things. Um, and so some of the, the things that he was teaching his community, other Muslims found to be deeply problematic and heretical. And so he was kind of shunned, essentially. Um, and he was buried and, you know, given a proper Islamic burial. But um, some Muslim communities got really upset with the fact that he was given an Islamic burial and that he was buried. So his body was actively, like, exhumed, like, taken, um, unburied. The site that was associated with his community was completely destroyed. Um, so this is an extreme case where anti-Sufi sentiments by Muslims also result in violence against um, Sufi shrines. And um, what's interesting in this context is that the state deployed its forces, the police, to come and quell um, intra-religious um, feuding amongst Muslims. Whereas in other instances, we're finding that the state themselves are actively participating in um, uh, purging or removing certain aspects of Sufi spaces in order to promote um, as Buddhist sites, right? So it doesn't play out the same way all the time and it's it's regional. And so I think this is where it's a little bit complicated. Um, so these are some examples just to kind of have a conversation around what I'm thinking about. Um, and again, thinking about it in the context of what's happening in the broader nation state, just broadly growing, you know, anti-Muslim sentiments. There was a, you know, a new Islamic university that was supposed to be built in Batsuko, the same place where the, the previous example was from. Um, and the funding was supposed to come from Saudi Arabia. There were online petitions um, to shut down Sharia University, right? So kind of typical rhetoric that we'd read here in the West of anti-Muslim or Islamophobic um, um, sentiments. Um, and after the Easter, um, Easter bombings, it was officially paused and they didn't want to support any of this building. There continues to be um, violence against um, Muslim communities, sometimes because of the rhetoric of um, Buddhist extremism. And so this often ends up happening against Muslim women um, and their dress because they're marked obviously, um, or sacred spaces that are associated with, with Muslims as well. Um, so I guess against these backdrop, I find that Sufi shrines um, are really compelling sites of analysis for me, partly because they indicate kind of the precarity of the, the nation state on the project. Um, you know, it's a site that is theologically heretical for some Muslim communities, um, but it's also actively erasing Islamic history on the island as well, right? They're trying to curate a particular Islamic history that is aligned with kind of a global representation of Islam. Um, so spatially, I think it's uh, very fascinating but there are also sites that highlight um, particular forms of ethno-nationalism um, and violence from kind of the nation state side, but also Buddhist extremists, right? And so these instances of desecration of tombs or excavations of tombs are really kind of signaling the fact that these are not always kind of a accommodating space, but they're also sites of deep violence as they are also sites of kind of piety and just um, religiosity, right? They're just really um, contested. And this is for me why it's been fascinating to study them and hopefully I could document a few more and try to think of this in kind of the broader context of what's happening. Thank you so much for that. That was really lovely. Um, 
I always find your your talks and just speaking with you in less formal settings as well, just so rich. And I, I learned so much from you. So thank you for that. Thank you everyone for coming. I know we're getting close to reading week and people are tired. Um, so yes, I really thank everyone for coming. We do. Um, I hope everyone who has a reading week next week gets to take a little bit of breathing space um, and see you after reading week at our, um, the following, the three SNID sessions that we have left. Um, so thank you everyone. Thank you, especially Dr. Xavier. for your Thank talk. you all for being here. I'm super, super grateful for the space and conversation and the opportunity. Um, yeah, thank you. That was fantastic. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.